0: Okay, uh, so let me, let me just tell y'all a couple of things that we're shifting, and then, um, and then we'll get into the message. Number one, uh, we have moved, so we started out the year uh, doing foundational stuff, and what I thought that was going to look like was we're going to take this list of topics and we're going to talk about them, and, um, and what the Lord was talking about when he started mentioning foundation was not that type of foundation. It's like the foundation for what he's building. And so, um, but what, what, so here's what we're gonna do. Today we're shifting a little bit and we're gonna move that foundation type stuff to Tuesday nights. And if you were here Tuesday night, uh, you know this. And so, um, anyway, so like this Tuesday night, we're just gonna have a whole discussion on the topic of healing and we're just gonna talk about it. And uh, obviously, we as a church believe in praying over people. And, uh, and stuff like that. and so, But we're going to have a conversation about that, and that's going to be the whole night, Tuesday night, and then uh, probably next Tuesday night. And I know some of you, this is brand new. So we talked about shifting into smaller groups. We're going to do that at some point if everybody feels good about it. But for the next few weeks, I just feel really led to just dive into some of these particular topics, like race, maybe the next Tuesday night, and just have a whole conversation on that and, um, and stuff. So anyway, so we have not... Forgotten about some of that stuff, but we're we're chasing the Lord, and so um, so anyway, so what we're going to start talking about today is, uh, I don't know what we're going to call this, but the, we're going to talk about the temple. So we're going to talk about, and um, but I'm, I'm going to start. I'm going to take it slow because I've got a ton. I'm going to take it real slow over the next few weeks, but I'm telling you, this is some major stuff. So we're going to start in Ezra. Throughout the next few weeks, we're going to find ourselves in Genesis one. Uh, in Exodus, and then in in John. It's going to be really cool. But I'm going to start out with Ezra today. And so I'm going to read some stuff that I've been writing, and then we'll we'll go into Ezra 3. Y'all good? Everybody awake? Okay, awesome. Y'all had Olivia last week, and y'all got me this week. So it's a downgrade, so everybody stay awake. Okay. Um, I'm just playing. Uh, Here we go. the temple or the tabernacle is one of the main themes in Scripture. From the first in the wilderness to the one Solomon builds to be God's permanent resting place, to, re, to the rebuilt temple we see in Ezra, and then the rededication of it in the Maccabean period before the Old Testament or in between, excuse me, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Then the temple that Jesus says would be raised up in three days. He says that in John 2, pointing to what 1 Corinthians 3:16 speaks on which is the fact that you and I are God's temple and that God's spirit rests in us, okay? From the beginning, the temple was where heaven and earth collided. It was where God made his habitation between the creation and his world. A mere veil separated God's dwelling place and our dwelling place. In the Old Testament, if this is how the temple functioned, not as a place for man, but a place for God to rest that man was invited into, we must see the temple as a prototype for a greater understanding of us and ultimately the cosmos. Y'all with me? I know this is a lot. I'm going to break this down. i just kind of giving the intro. I asked this Tuesday night, but let me ask you this question. Uh, You don't have to answer this. This is just to get you thinking. How much space does God take up? We don't know, right? Infinite. Infinite, right? So can a space contain God? I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm just trying to get y'all to think. God's space is infinite. Okay, He fills everything. Therefore, to create a space for us in creation, he had to contract some of himself for us to fill in him. If God fills everything, if this room was filled with, I don't know, uh, styrofoam, what's those little things you put in boxes, little styrofoam balls? Peanuts. If this room was filled to the top with peanuts and we said we want to put a hundred boxes in this room, what's the first thing we have to do? Create space for the hundred boxes, right? If God fills everything, which he does, and his space is infinite, which it is, in Genesis 1, when we come into the picture, God has to make room in himself for us to dwell in him. Think about this. The temple, in the Old Testament, was us saying, you created a space for us in your space, now we are creating a place for you in our space. Are y'all with me? This is huge, okay? So in Genesis 1, we see God taking his space and creating a place for us in it. In the Old Testament, when the temple is built, we return the favor by saying this is our space and we're going to create a place for you in ours. So it's a returning, it's a back and forth of this sharing space. It's notable to point out, I want you to think about this, it's notable to point out how adamant God was about dwelling within the creation with his people. God was adamant. He was unshaken in the fact that he wanted to dwell with us in our creation with his people. So what, what, kind, of, what kind of grace and love does it take for the Lord to shift reality? Because at the end of the day, does God need us? No. Yet he does. Because he creates the reality within his world that he needs us. He, he didn't need us, yet he created and shifted the game to need us on purpose. He didn't need Adam, or did he? Or did he shift the desires within him to say, I need that? It's not because he lacked, it's because he created a lack so that we could feel it. It's a little too deep. I know it's a Sunday morning, it's okay. I'm good with that. In Exodus 40, Exodus 40, God's glory fills the portable tabernacle. And in 2 Chronicles 5 and 6, God fills his permanent house of which Solomon says. Now, I want you to hear this. I'm about to break down some Hebrew. This is what Solomon says. I have built a magnificent house for you a place for you to sit forever. How do we not read that and sit back and think, now wait a minute. Because if I ask you right now, where's God? What would you say? (laughs) See, now y'all are scared to answer. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Let Let me say this. If you went to Solomon in this moment and said, Solomon... Where is God? He would point you straight to the Holy of Holies. Let me quote I have built a magnificent house. Your translations say temple, wrong Hebrew is house. Either way, let's say temple. I have built you a magnificent temple or house for you, a place for you to sit, some say dwell. Forever, and the other translation of the word forever is permanently. That word for place, where it says, I've built a magnificent house for you, a place for you, that that Hebrew word means an established foundation. Excuse me, I just bit my tongue. So I have built a magnificent house for you and established a foundation for you to sit forever is what the Hebrew says in Ezekiel 10 and I'm not even talking about the temple today I'm just giving you kind of a little intro so y'all you will just hang with me in Ezekiel 10 we see the vision of God's presence leaving that same temple because God's people had rejected him now check this out here's a shift the next time after Ezekiel ten that we see the language of God's presence dwelling with man is where. Just a little little, uh, little trivia. Does anybody know? After Ezekiel ten, the pre- he sees this vision of the presence of the Lord with these spinning wheels and all this crazy leaving the temple. When's the next time that we see? I'll just I'll give it away. I'll give it away. When's the next time that we see God's ma- God making his tabernacle with men? I teach on this verse almost every week. John 1. But the things change. The game changes. Listen to this. This is what John 1.14. By the way, John one is not necessarily the start of the book of John. John 1 is a, a, most scholars agree on this, all scholars agree on this, that John 1 would have been a hymn that the early church sang. And so he's starting his gospel out with this hymn. So this hymn would have been written after Jesus ascended, after the resurrection, after the whole thing. And then John 2 kind of kicks off his, his, his gospel. So in John 1, this is what it says. Remember, Last time we see the presence dwelling with man is Ezekiel 10 when it is lifted. All right, here's what it says. The word, Jesus, was made flesh and skeno'u, that's a Greek word, among us. Some say dwell, I'm gonna break this down. The word made flesh and dwelt among us We looked at his glory as of only from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word made flesh. Skenou, that that Greek word, means to dwell. It means to rest as in a tent. And the other translation is to have my tabernacle. Okay? The Greek word for flesh is actually materiality, to materialize. Okay, so in Greek, if you were reading Greek, this is how you would read this verse. The word materialized as us and made his tabernacle in us. One more time. See, we we because we have thrown away the Old Testament because we don't need it anymore, because praise God we got Jesus, we don't understand who Jesus is. Do you know what the, the Bible says? Every promise of Scripture finds its yes and amen in Jesus. We don't know who Jesus is if we don't know all the promises that fill him. Do you understand this? So we read John 1 and we are like, oh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's cool. No. Last time that God rested within his people, it was in a temple built by man in a holy of holies that only a few had access to every now and then. Now, God himself has made, in John 1, has made creation his temple where he has filled and made his home within us. With us. The Greek word could be on us or in us. Uh, So, think about this. A group of people who only had an arm's length, and that's very generous, an arm's length, access to the presence it was really they had a medium that a priest would go in and come out this is what the Lord said they didn't have one-on-one access to the presence now Jesus who by the way is God puts on our material and dwells among us Remember last week, or two weeks ago, I talked about ontology at Easter. Great topic to talk about at Easter, right? Was anybody here? No. Okay. So, um, (laughs) I know some of y'all were here. So, ontology. Just just hang with me for a second. This isn't going to be that deep the rest of the way, so this is the only deep part. Maybe. But... Ontology, the study of existence. There are two really main ideas when it comes to existence. There's existence when something is materialized, and then there's existence when something is giving it given its function. Okay? So, for example, the example I used at Easter was when we started our church, and same with Jay, when you filed the paperwork for the nonprofit. So when we started our church, we filed the paperwork about seven months before we ever had a service. So seven months before we ever had a service By definition of the government, we were a church. Never had a service, never had a message, never had a worship song. Would anybody ever look at that and say, oh yeah, those guys are a great church? No. Technically, we were a church, but functionally, we weren't a church yet. So our existence is based on when we started to function as a church, not when we materialized as a church. Y'all with me? So that's, but then on the flip side, if you take some Legos and say, I'm gonna build a tower, and you build a tower, that tower becomes, exi- it, bring, it, it, um, it exists when it materializes. It's, it doesn't have a function, its existence is found in its material. Are you, are you with me? So we are made up of material, but we do not exist without the breath of life within us. So if I die today, My material is still going to be here, yet my function is going to be somewhere else. Right? So you wouldn't say I existed now. You would say I existed with Jesus, even though my material is here. Right? Are you all with me? Does this make sense? Okay. So Jesus takes the function of God, places it in our material so that our material could be given the function of God. Jesus says, I'm going to materialize as man, fully God. I'm going to materialize as man so that the material of man could now function as, uh uh-oh, God. Well, I don't know about that. You don't have to know about that. That's scripture. This is, my, this is my, if you want to say, if I'm going to translate the Bible, maybe one day I will. It won't, it'll be her, her, heresy up and down, but that's okay. According to everybody else, not according to any kind of thinking. Um, the word, listen, the word materialized as us and made his tabernacle in us. A big shift happens in this moment. Jesus came to bring the material of creation back to its original function. We call this the kingdom, or we call it the new creation. So everything that Jesus does is not only to establish that kingdom or new creation but also to be a signpost as to what exactly he is establishing in the first place. So the presence, this time, did not feel a materialized building, but a materialized man. I'm going to say this one more time. I'm about to explode up here. This is what happens when I don't preach for a week. One more time. This time, the presence does not feel a materialized building as it did before. This time, the presence fills a materialized man. The last time this happens, the because la- this happened before, the last time this happens is a man by the name of Adam. Let us make man in our image. And Adam is spun out. Last time, and then there's the fall, and then there's this this big gaping hole in the heart of humanity where sin has started to fill. Jesus materialized as what was original so that everybody else through him could be brought back to what they originally were. He makes creation his temple, man being the first fruits of this. If this is the case, if this is is the case, what can we see in creation itself that points us to a temple of sorts? Another way to ask this is: Could it be that Jesus came to make his tabernacle creation itself? to take it back to its original design as a dwelling or resting place for God with us. To spoil? Yes, it is. The story of Genesis 1, and we're not even going to talk about this, but just to give you a little little intro. The story of Genesis 1 is not a story of what God did in the material of the cosmos, which of course he created. But it's a story of why God functioned that material that he created the way that he did. We should then find a mirror of creation in the building of the tabernacle and temple, which we do, and in Jesus. Inauguration, Jesus' inauguration of freshly restored creation. So what I want to do over the next few weeks is walk you through the significance of us now being God's temple. And what that means for creation and show you that we must let the Lord redeem our thinking. But first, today, I want to talk about altars. Why we must restore worship and devotion before we build the temple. Before the Lord dwells in his temple, we must create an altar of consecration where we dedicate our hearts first. Here we go. Ezra 3. Ezra 3. Y'all with me? Y'all good? Got so much time, so (laughs) here we go. That's dangerous. Ezra 3. All right. So let me give you a quick... Kind of backstory so you you know what's going on when we hit here. All right. So the Israelites have been in exile for 70 years. Okay? Y'all with me? Y'all paying attention? Okay. The Israelites had been in exile for 70 years from around 608 B.C. to now about 538 B.C. This is when King Cyrus of Persia sends them back through a moving of the Lord. This is all in Ezra 1. For the specific reason of building the house of building the temple. The, the Hebrew word for temple is literally translated house. And so um, so I, I would personally love it if we could just call it house throughout, but that's okay. So they were sent back from exile. They weren't sent back with just this idea, all right, it's been 70 years, y'all just tell it back. No, they were sent back for one reason, which was to rebuild the temple. That was the reason why they were sent back out of exile. okay. Cyrus means son. I might make some connections with that later in the next few weeks. Maybe not. And the number 70, they were in exile 70 years. The number 70 means perfect spiritual order. They were brought back into a perfect spiritual order. The first house or temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. And then let me let me just read why this all happened. Isaiah six. You don't have, please don't turn there. Just stay at Ezra three. Isaiah six. Listen to what this says. Very familiar. Isaiah sees the train of his robe fill the temple. Um, amazing encounter with the Lord who will who will go for us. But then he says this. Isaiah six eight through thirteen. It says this. Then I Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Plural. And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, the Israelites, be ever hearing, never understanding, ever seeing, never perceiving. Make the heart of the people calloused, make their ears dull, their closed eye, or, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, listen to this, I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined, And without inhabitant, excuse me, without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken. This is what he says. And though a tenth remains in the land, I like the NLT better, it says, even if a tenth remained in the land, it will be again laid waste if even a tenth remained, I would have to waste it again. So everybody's got to go. But, but, as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Okay? Exile and destruction of what was once God's house was necessary for the redeeming of God's people. Remember the vision of Ezekiel. Ezekiel. God left his house among his people because the land had become a curse. But the holy seed remained in the tree, in the culture, in the land. It just had to be cut down in order to see it. I have wrongly read that passage in Isaiah and thought that the tree, once it had been cut down and the stump remained, that stump became the holy seed. And the Lord really challenged me this week as I was studying for this, that maybe I should see it a little different. Is it that the stump would become the holy seed or that the holy seed was in the stump? Is it that the Lord had to create a holy seed out of a chopped down tree or that the tree had so grown out of its purpose that it had to be cut back down to what it was in the beginning. This is what he's saying. He says, "Not one person, not one person, can remain, because even if a tenth did, I would have to do it all over again." Now, some people, some the the remnant do remain here and there, but what the Lord is saying is, 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 if even one of these corrupt people that are mine remained in this land i'd have to do it again because i've got to get them out in order to find the seed of what i called abraham into way before they ever came back into this land which is covenant some some of you feel like the lord's been cutting you down he's not creating something in your life he's trying to get you to see what was there before everything else was built on top of it all right so it didn't become the holy seed when the tree was cut down. It the holy seed was already there. They allowed it to be covered up by false growth. Yahweh again was not creating the holy seed but redeeming the holy seed. Okay? Now this had taken place. Now that this had taken place, the new or fresh restored house is ready to be rebuilt. There's something interesting though that I'm about to read that happens when they are sent back to build this temple. They do not get right to work building the temple. They build something else first. So this is what we're going to read. This is where we are. Ezra 3 says this. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. They left exile as a split kingdom they're back from exile as a united kingdom. Not the UK, but you know what I'm saying. Okay. Then Joshua. Sorry about that. Then Joshua, son of Josadok and his fellow priest and Zerubbabel. Did my mic just go out? Oh, okay. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, And his associates began to build the altar of God, of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord morning and evening. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles. Man, I'm going to make some cool connections here. They celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices after all appointed sacred festivals to the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Now listen to this. Though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Ezra and Nehemiah both bump up real close to the timing of the end of the New Testament. Sometimes we can forget that because it's located way earlier in the Old Testament. But your, your, old te- your Bible is separated by, um, by uh, I don't want to say topic, but, but what kind of book it is. That's how it's separated. Not necessarily time. So these happen way late in the Old Testament. Okay, So they happen later. Joshua, who is here, he leads the charge, son of Josadoc, Joshua is the same root word where we get Jesus from in the Hebrew. He's leading the charge in this. You're going to start seeing some cool connections about Jesus himself. The altar of burnt offerings is the altar that they rebuilt. So let me give you some background and then I got some preaching for a minute. This off altar of burnt offerings, it would have been placed between the entrance of the courtyard and the doorway that led to the holy place. That's where this would have been placed. You could not enter God's presence without passing this altar. It was a reminder that access to God required sacrifice. Its fire originally was lit by the Lord himself. You can read about this in Leviticus. Its fire was originally lit by the Lord himself. It emphasized the need for atonement, Say it like this at one minute and devotion to the Lord. So, listen to this. You ready? Before they built a house for the Lord again, they restored their worship, at one minute, and devotion to the Lord. What, what got them in exile in the first place? Lack of devotion. You can read this in Malachi, you can read this in Isaiah, you can read this in all the prophets. What got them in exile was a lack of devotion. What has had us in the American church in exile is lack of devotion. When another generation comes back from exile, because this is 70 years later, whole new crew. When another generation comes back from exile, the first thing they fix is what sent them into exile, which is not building a building, but it's consecrating a heart. They weren't sent into exile because of what was going on in the building. What was going on in the building was a consequence of a loss of devotion and heart. So when they come back out of exile, they don't start getting back to work on the temple. They fix the issue that caused the temple to become a place where the Lord no longer wanted to dwell in. So we have been in an exile in the church. And what have we started to do coming out of exile? Get right back to building the building. And let me tell you, the Lord will not dwell where he used to dwell before we went into this exile. This is a prophetic word. So listen, what the Lord had grace for before 2020 is he will not have grace for in 2021 and beyond. The Lord used to let us play games and be patient with us, with his bride. Now he's getting his bride back. In one season, he let us prostitute the bride in hopes that we would come home. In this season, he has called us home but will no longer allow us to prostitute the bride. Y'all real quiet. This isn't a game. I've said that for the past three times i preach, preached, and I cannot emphasize this enough. This is not a game. We have made it a game. We've made it religious. We've made it something that we just throw some, not cash, throw some coins at every now and then and say, I hope it sticks. Or we'll throw some events at and we'll say, I hope it sticks. And this is his bride. This isn't the church as in the event everybody shows up to every Sunday. This is the bride of God. When you start messing with my bride, guess what you're going to get? Me. And I hear the Lord saying, when you start messing with my bride, guess what you're going to get? Me. And what we have been doing to his bride is we have put it way down here on the list of priorities and said I'll get to it when I get to it. What we're saying when we say that, I'm jumping way ahead and I'm okay with it. What we're saying when we say that is we're saying we're putting God way down the list of priorities and we'll get to him when we get to him. And he said, I tell you the truth that there will be many that come to me and say, didn't we prophesy in your name, show up to church every Sunday in your name, give a few dollars here and there in your name? And I'm going to look at them and say, I never knew you. This is the truth. Broad is the way that leads to destruction and everybody finds it, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and only a handful do. Why does he say that? Because in order to get to eternal life and resurrection, we're going to have to lay down what took eternal life from us, which ultimately was pride. And yet pride is what is filling our culture in the American church today. We don't care about the presence. We care about how we look. We, We don't care about Jesus filling the room. We care about people filling the room. And I don't care how many people fill the room. If Jesus doesn't fill the room exclusively, it don't matter. In fact, we're doing more destruction than we are good. When another generation comes back, they fulfill devotion. The temple was destroyed for lack of devotion. Now the temple would be rebuilt from devotion. What is devotion? Devotion is wholeheartedness. The first festival that they celebrate is the Festival of Tabernacles, in, in, in Hebrew it's uh, Sukkot, um, which is pronounced really weird. So I'm probably not giving the right um, enunciation to that. But um, anyway, it's the celebration that they the, they celebrated their rescue from slavery in Egypt. Okay, we see this in Leviticus 23, and the blessing of harvest, which is found in Deuteronomy 16. So, this celebration that they were celebrating after coming back out of exile was to remember them leaving slavery and to remember the creation. Let's say it like this new creation. So, they were celebrating freedom from slavery and they were celebrating Yahweh bringing new creation, is what this festival was. Okay? Many of us want to build something for the Lord. But are unwilling to become someone for the Lord. One more time. Many of us want to build something. For the Lord. Many of us want to build something for the Lord, but are unwilling to become someone for the Lord. Listen, before one stone was laid for the temple, they restored wholehearted, one-thing devotion. Before one stone was laid in the temple, they restored devotion. This is where churches and believers alike get trapped. Will show up and try to build his house without first addressing the missing altars first. Without first addressing the missing altars. Let me say this one more time. This is where we get trapped. We show up to try to build his house without first addressing the missing altars, places of devotion. Instead of having great moves of God, we end up in exile because the presence left when our devotion left. I think I have this written down. Yes. Presence follows devotion. Devotion. Presence follows devotion. Devotion and presence go hand in hand. If you don't have devotion, you don't have presence. If you don't have presence, you don't have devotion. When the Word made flesh and dwelled or made his tabernacle among us, who did he go find? He went and found a handful that were so devoted they were willing to trade the farm for him. He didn't, when the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, he didn't go find the religious elite. He found the fishermen that the religious elite had thrown away. Because the fishermen would hear things like "I am God" and say, "Let's go." Jesus, when he makes the declaration, when he says, "I and the Father are one," all the religious people say, "No." I said this Tuesday night. If Tim got up here and said, "I am God," we'd all be like, "This place has lost his mind," you know, right? This is what Jesus does. Jesus, fully God, yet fully man, walks into the room and says, I and the Father are one. A handful of his followers say, yes. The religious elite say, let's kill him. This is... If you want, if you don't, this is what's happening right now in our day. Is that Jesus is giving anyone who will say yes to devotion access like you've never dreamed. But that access is causing religion to say, let's kill it. Yeah. And you and I will have to make the choice are we going to be in devotion? and see what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended that he has planned for those who love him? Or are we going to be those who are so so molded by how we grew up or what we've been a part of or what denomination we've been a part of that when he shows up to draw us in, we say, let's kill it. This doesn't look like what we... Listen, this is why they say that. They say he can't be the Messiah because we know the Old Testament. This is is the reason that they killed Jesus was because they knew the Old Testament and he wasn't what they read about in the Old Testament. Yes, he was. Not only was he what they read about, he was what they read about. He was the word that they read. But they didn't comprehend it because it didn't look like what they were taught growing up. So as the Lord is bringing us into a higher view of who he is, what's going to have to happen is us saying, if this doesn't look like how I grew up, but it matches perfectly with what this says, maybe how I think about what this says needs to be shifted a little bit. This is how we got into the mess where every Christian on planet... Well, no, no, no. Every Christian in the South is sitting around on their butt doing absolutely nothing except posting on Facebook... Sitting around doing nothing, saying, I hope we go home in the morning. That's, this is how we got here. Spent all day posting their Bible verses, posting all this You know how we got there? Because they grew up being taught that God didn't give a rip about his creation and therefore wanted to blow it up and get you out first. And as a bonus, everybody that you hate gets blown up too. Right? Now, of course, that doesn't line up with Scripture. What? Right? Amen. Amen. <laughs> so even some of y'all had a, had a difficult time saying amen just now. I mean, seriously. Bro, what you talking? You're taking away my blessed hope. If your blessed hope is escaping, you don't have blessed hope. You got, well... You know how when people in the South say, Lord bless them, and what they're really saying? And That might be the blessing. But anyway, um, you, know, you know what you know what the scripture calls the blessed hope? Do you know what it's hello? Christ in us. The hope of salvation. Or the hope of glory. Christ in us. What what what's my blessed hope? Christ in me. What's my blessed hope for creation? Christ in it. I'm not waiting for him to get on his white horse and ride down and steal everybody away. I'm waiting for him to use you and me to bring his creation back to where it was good. Well, Josh, you taught this the past seven weeks. Yes, because we've been taught for seven years plus that that's not the case. We've got to rethink. This has never changed. But there have been people in our past that have taught things authoritative that weren't even close to even true. And that's where people are really finding this rub today. Is that you've been taught things as authoritative that this doesn't even mention. And what I don't want to do is give you something authoritative that this does I want to. I can give you my opinion. But we've got to get out of this game of talking like we know what we're talking about when this doesn't even care about half the questions we're answering. Mm -hmm. Presence follows devotion. Presence follows devotion. The trap, the trap is that you can be building something great in your life while everything is actually crumbling. That... You want to talk about deception? That's that's what it is. Is that you can be building something that looks like it's booming and growing in your life while who you really are is crumbling. You can build the most magnificent temple you could possibly build, but if you don't fix the altar first, it don't matter. This is our issue. We want temples rather than altars. I'm telling you, if we would repair the altars, we'd become the temples. I spent a lot of time on that right there, okay? That was my, that was my message, so thank you all for that response. Um, <laughs> thought it was good. All right. No, we, what we, want, we want temples. We want what we can see. We want what we can build and work hard to achieve, rather than what we become. It's easy to build. Anybody can build. What is difficult is to become. Unbelievers can build great things. My iPhone, my iPhone was built by a bunch of people who I would dare say are probably unbelievers. And it's an amazing piece of technology. So unbelievers can build great things. What they don't have is the only thing that matters, which is what you and I are becoming. And we've got to make the decision, are we, going, are we going to build or are we going to become that bears the fruit of a building? Ministry has taken, let me say it like this, ministry has to look like holiness and devotion until we learn to be content with those alone. Holiness means to be set apart. So ministry has to look like us being set apart and in devotion until we learn to be content if that's all we ever get. Then and only then will Yahweh release us to build his home. I I really, I mean, maybe I wrote this. I don't think I did. I think I was too scared to write it. I, I think, and this is very generic, but I know a lot of people listen to this podcast that don't live here. But I really, we're playing real dangerous with ministry right now. Very dangerous. Because we're trying to build his church, and that's not even our job. Our job is to become his church. Jesus tells Peter, you are Peter, re-identification. You are Peter, and on your re-identification, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell are kicking our teeth in because the Lord is not building our church as we are. I'm not built. You know. You know what I'm doing to build this church, and what we're doing to build this church. You know what we're doing? Devotion. And we're inviting people into it, and we're calling people into it. But we're not calling them into a cool event. We're calling them into devotion. And I said this Tuesday night. But here's where a lot of us are going to have to get by. Like this ain't a social club. A lot of us might have grown up in a church that was a social club, and I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying we're not. We are the kingdom. We are the bride of Christ. I'm not going to trick you and convince you to be here. I'm going to be in devotion, and if you want to be in devotion too, here we go. But this is how we're shifting ministry, because like I said, the uh, I think this was at Christmas or uh, Easter. But like I said at Easter, we we can either to all the people who are unbelievers, we can either make the gospel cheap so everybody buys into it. Or we can tell these people, this isn't how you were made to be. You were made to be this. One of those is slow, and one of those finds handfuls as you go along. The other one brings in the masses who none of which are ever truly born again. Because we can't teach the gospel as being born again, because that would cause you to have to live right here, who you actually are. What we can teach is behavior modification that's called the gospel, and you can do that. And what I'm talking about is not behavior modification. What I'm talking about is not works. You can't accomplish this. Even if you were perfect, you couldn't accomplish what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you getting a new name from him. You can't work on that. You can't do that. He can. So we've got to build the altar where we find our way back to devotion before we ever start asking the question, what are we building? You know, real quiet. I mean, I think it's a good thing. If you are a believer, truly, then your life is not primarily about what you build for God, but what you become for God. If you are a believer, truly, your life is not about what you build for God primarily. It's about what you become for God, and he can do stuff with that. David built some great things. Solomon built some great things. Jesus built some great things, right? Nothing existed apart from him. That was kind of a little dad thing in Genesis. I mean, anyway, you and I are the great things, you know. But but it's, it's not about what we can build. It's about what we can become. When you jump to John 1, when you jump to John 1, the next time we see the Lord feeling something, what does the Lord feel? Does he feel a temple again? Or this time, does he feel a man What what have you started to build? Matt, go ahead and come up here. What have you started building for the Lord before you restored the place of devotion? I'm talking, listen, I'm talking, You could, I, fill in the blank. I'm talking about careers. I'm talking about relationships. I'm talking about school. I'm talking about what you spend your time on. I'm talking about what you spend your money on. What what have you started to build, and let me say it real sarcastically, for the Lord? And I say it like that because if you were building something for the Lord, you would start with you. So a lot of times what we like to do to make ourselves, I used to do this, to make ourselves feel better, is we'll start building something and say it's in the name of or for the Lord, When really what it is, is a cover up for my unwillingness to become something for the Lord. Like I said, we see, we see, look, I mean, go outside and look to your left and look to your right and all everywhere. You'll see churches as far as the eye can see. We can build some stuff. Yet Columbia is more lost today than it's ever been. We got more churches today than we've ever had and we're more lost than we've ever been. And it's because we have built and we built and we built and we built, and we refuse to stop and say, maybe what we need is not a building. Maybe what we need is an altar in the secret place. Maybe what we need is not another church. Maybe what we need is to maybe become the church. And if we would become the church, we wouldn't need 14,000 other churches around us. We need one united as the body. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says in John 17, they will know you are mine by your unity, which is why the world doesn't have a clue who Jesus is because we aren't unified. And you know why we're not unified? Because we're men. Because we're attracted to a bunch of hocus pocus nonsense rather than the secret place. The secret place isn't going to make you go, wow, that's amazing. But it should the secret place is not when we give testimonies, when we give you know what testimonies we don't give in any church. We don't give testimonies like, you know what? The other day, I spent time with the Lord and I felt him resting right here with me. I don't give us testimonies, who cares? Right? But you better believe we'll give the exaggerated testimonies of what we prayed and what we saw. Why? Cuz you say abracadabra and everybody's wild. And I'm telling you today, that stuff, the Lord is pausing. And if we're not careful, he's going to take away. I believe what we've been in. Let me finish my notes. So this is, this is where we're going. One heart for one thing. If we do this, Haggai says in Haggai 2.9, says this, if we are one thing With one heart, with one devotion, this is what it says. That the glory of this present house, which 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, is now you and I. That the glory of the present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace, says the Lord Almighty. Of the increase, Isaiah says... Of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is something the Lord gave me, and and I'm gonna chase this rabbit, but I I got one more rabbit I wanna chase. What time is it? Perfect. You you ain't heard this. So I'm gonna need a lot of grace when I say this. Okay, y'all good? How you are devoted to God's bride says a lot about how you're devoted to Him. Amen, brother. How? Listen, how you are devoted to God's bride says a lot about how you are devoted to God Himself. Nobody has to pull my arm to be here. We shift our vacation around to make sure we're here. You know why? Not because I'm the pastor. I I love this. I love being in the place with the Lord. And you know why? Because I've fallen in love with him. And if I can get to the bride, I can get to him 100% of the time. Because Ephesians says, the bride and Christ are one. You find the bride, you find Christ. So how devoted we are to His bride speaks volumes about how we are devoted to Him. There's the the the, the modern mantra today is I can do church. I, I've, I've joked about this before, but I can do church on my own. And just to be a thousand percent clear, no, you can't. I, I man, I can I can I can just I can do it on my own. No no. You know what the church is? It's, it's the eccles? It's the governing body. It's the bride unified together with Christ as the head. If you come up here and punch me in the chest, nobody's going to say that you punched Josh's chest and hurt Josh's chest. They're going to say you punched Josh and hurt Josh. Because my chest and my head are one identity. And if Christ is the head of the body, if Christ is the head of the church, how we treat the church is how we treat God. So we've got people all up and down the scope that treat the church apathetically. And I'm just helping you out because that's what I'm called to do. When you treat God's bride apathetically, you're treating God apathetically. I I know people have been hurt. I know people have been let down. I know people have been discouraged by the church. And uh, listen, I'm sorry. I apologize about that. But we're talking about the bride. Maybe you've been an entity that was a great nonprofit 501c3 organization that did some great religious things. But I'm talking about the bride. I'm not talking about somebody. I'm not talking about me. I'm not even talking about Dream or any individual in this room. I'm talking about the bride, which consists of all of us together. When you start messing with his bride, you start messing with him. Which is why the Lord is jealous over his bride right now. So, rabbit number two. Rabbit number two. Well, Josh, what do you, this is why, well, we talk about tithing. And people hate sometimes when we talk about tithing because they had a bad experience growing up when it comes to tithing. I'm sorry about your experience. I really am sorry about your experience growing up. But we're talking about the real deal. Jesus or God speaks through Malachi before the Old Testament ends and says, you have robbed me. And they say, well, how have he robs you. And he says, you've robbed me not by not bringing the tithes and offerings. If you would, you can even test me. I'd throw up in the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, not just finances, that you would have no room to contain it, but you have robbed me of what is mine. So when it comes to tithing, I am in our church not being a great leader to tell you that your tithe has such significance that it can shut the gates of heaven over your life not my words it's the words of malachi it's the words of god i don't want people to tithe so that we can be rich i want people to tithe because we're trying to bring a kingdom into the earth i need the floodgates of heaven open on every person in this room not just me not just a handful. I need every person in this room to have wide access to every bit of pouring the Lord wants to do. That's why we talk about tithing. Uh, Right? Listen, some of y'all online, you, you, you feed off of this every single week. You feed off of it every single week. We have a lot of people that do that and we are, amen. It's so awesome. So awesome. We need the floodgates open on your life too. I, uh, I've said this a lot last year. Here we go. This is the rabbit. We might, this might make some people mad. Um, I've said this a lot last year about when we've talked about COVID and, um, and I have mentioned uh, that I don't believe the Lord sent COVID but I believe the Lord will use it and, uh, and all that fun stuff. I think maybe we've been focused on the wrong thing. I don't care where COVID came from. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. Is that the church was more lost than a... Somebody who's never lived in the city of Columbia being plopped down on Main Street and said, find your way to Harbison. Impossible, right? I still can't do that sometimes. I've lived here for almost 10 years. But... We, we have, we've been lost. And so I don't care where COVID came from. Here's what I do know is that in the beginning of last year, 2020, 20 plus 20 equals 40, right? You can take that prophetic. You can take it crazy. I don't really care. In 2020, the Lord shut everything off and said, we're going to stop this for a little while. That's what he tells Isaiah. He says, unless one remained in the land, we'd have to do it all again. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cause governments to force the church to shut down for a little bit. Because they won't do it without that. We're going to cause them to shut down. We're going to move everybody out. And then we're going to fix this thing. But when we come back, we're not playing the games anymore. This is We're back. We're back. The games are over. And, and I don't say that necessarily for our church. I say that for whoever listens to this. I don't even say that for any particular church. I say that for all of us, as the bride. That the the game, like, y'all, y'all understand the games are over. Here, what do I mean when I say the games are over? Like, like you need to be in devotion, falling in love with your beloved, or else who cares? If you prayed a prayer and have never fallen in love with Jesus, who cares? If you're on your way to heaven and aren't falling in love with Jesus right now, because the goal is not you in heaven, the goal is heaven in here called new creation. That's how the story is. The, the end of the story, we went to Disney on Ice, it's all about good endings. The end of the story, you end in Revelation, right? You end in Revelation, and guess what John sees? He doesn't see everybody all telling it out to Pluto. Here's what he sees. He sees a new creation descending from the heavenly realm. This is what he sees. Let me just, let me just, just for the fun of it. I know y'all got to go. That's okay. I didn't preach last week. John, this is what he says. He says, Revelation 21, he says, I saw a new heaven, a new earth. New, not because he recreated it. New because it was given its original function back. It's the Greek. For the first heaven and earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Man, I wish I could teach on this, but I can't. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Coming where? (laughs) Prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with with them. How did we miss this? My dwelling place isn't where he is. His dwelling place is actually where I am. How do we start seeing people in the creation differently with this in mind? This has your life has purpose now. When you leave this building today, every decision you make has purpose now. What purpose? God's prophetic design looking ahead is he wants to make his dwelling place here with us. It's how it's been from the beginning. It's the story of Genesis 1. It's the story of the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's the story of the temple in Jerusalem. It's the story of the rebuilt temple in Ezra. And it's the story of the new temple, Jesus Christ, coming into the earth to create us The temple where he wants to dwell in the story over and over and over and over from beginning to end is not God saying I'm done it's God saying I want you to be my bride so I can dwell where you are he creates a garden so that he and Adam and Eve can walk in the cool of the day together he does not create a garden so that they can have a portal to transport somewhere else He creates a garden so that he can be with them there. You were saved not so you could go somewhere else. You were saved to create a garden in the earth for Yahweh and you and everybody in your life to dwell together. You were saved because Yahweh was looking for you to be his home. Prove it. Go to Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit falls, they aren't sucked up into a black hole. They become the temple. Can y'all tell I'm passionate about this? Because I because I have seen, listen, you and I, we have tasted and seen this. And I will not be a pastor that is okay sitting back, wiping my hands clean and saying, let it go as it wants to go. No, I'm going to be a shepherd that says, if this house is the only house I'm leading and as for me and my house, we're going to be the church. We're going, to start, we're going to be the temple of God. When you walk in this room, I do not want you to encounter a great event. When you walk in this room, I want you to encounter a great God. I don't want you to leave this room saying, Josh preached a great message. I want you to leave this room saying, man, if he can see that, I can too. That's what I want. I don't care if you remember half the stuff I say. But I do care if you take this frequency home with you and say, if he can hear that, I can hear that. If he can see that, I can see that. If he can go that deep, I can go that deep. And you see what I'm not seeing. This is what I want. I want to dare you to do something. I don't want you to take this and believe this because this is what Josh said. I want you to hear what Josh said and it be a dare for you to hear something yourself. So, so. What's the point of today? Here's the point. Is that before we talk about, because we're not talking about the temple, but before we talk about the temple, I think we need to take some serious time and figure out where our devotion is. All of us. We need to take some serious time and say, has the altar been torn down? Before I lay a hand on a brick to build up the temple, I've got to lay a hand on a brick to build back the altar. I mean, what, what what in your life has become your identity that you are building that was never designed to be your identity? Are you known by Tyler, the photographer? And I'm saying this because I know you're not. Are you known by Tyler, the great photographer, or are you known by Tyler, son of God? Am I known by Josh, the preacher of Dream Church, or am I known by Josh, the son of God? Are you known as Mary, the student at CIU? Or are you known as Mary, the daughter of God? You see what I'm saying? Because then when you step up to a mic or when you're having a conversation with people at work or when you're taking a picture, when you're doing all this stuff, as you're doing it, if your identity is in who you are becoming, all of a sudden everything you do starts spawning off other people who are becoming. Genesis 1, you can only create what you are of the same kind. So if we talk about viruses being contagious, if we can believe that we are who he says we are, you talk about contagious, people are going to have to wear a mask. Religion. People are going to have to wear a mask to keep you out of it. To keep what you have out of them. It's going to become so contagious that people are going to have to run for their lives to get away from it because it's just going to grab people. Because we're not talking about building a religion. I'm not even talking about building up a lifestyle of works. I'm talking about becoming something that you were actually already designed to be. This is everything that Jay said, that you were originally designed to be in the image of God. Not just image, image and likeness of God. It's one thing to look like God. It's another thing to be like God. You were designed to be in the image and the likeness. So not just when people look at you, they see Jesus. When people hear what's coming out of your mouth, it sounds like Jesus. When people see how you operate and the decisions you make, it sounds and operates and looks like Jesus. This is what we were made for. So I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I just want us to take a minute and we can just, whatever the Lord needs to do through this. Whatever needs to do, even if it's just a dare for us to go deeper, then that's what this is. But I'm going to pray, and then we'll be out. Lord, um, thank you for what you're doing in this place. Thank you for what you're doing in me, what you're doing in our people. Lord, you are, you are as you told Habakkuk, you're doing something in our day that if we were told what you were doing, we wouldn't believe it. As the world around us is crumbling, the world within your bride is being built up to step in and take the place of the culture that's crumbling. There are two cultures at work right now. I just see, I I just, let me just share this for a minute. I see this right now as I'm praying. I just see this vision. There's two cultures active right now in the earth. One of those is being demolished and is crumbling one of those is being built up and prepared to rule what we don't need to do is start retreating when the culture that we're not a part of starts crumbling what we need to see that as is a prophetic indicator that maybe the kingdom that he's building up within the bride is ready to take its place Revelation 19 says that the essence of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. We're going to start being a prophetic people, not because we'll tell people tomorrow five hairs are going to fall out of your hair and it's going to mean this. That's great. But we're going to be a prophetic people that so know the nature of Jesus that every single thing we say and do speaks and screams the nature of Jesus. And according to Revelation 19, that is the essence of what prophecy is. This is getting good. So, Lord, we love you in your name. Amen.